We need to do everything we can. Uh, we need to provide every weapon system, provide every support to Ukraine. They are on the front line. They're fighting the Russians alone. That's former U.S. ambassador to Ukraine, William B. Taylor, calling for more U.S. assistance as Ukraine fights back against Vladimir Putin's invasion. I'm Margaret Hoover. This is the Firing Line podcast. I spoke to the diplomat and decorated Vietnam veteran as the Russian military marches towards Kyiv. With civilian casualties mounting and a major humanitarian crisis unfolding. Putin's war has caused enormous suffering and needless loss of life of women, children, everyone in Ukraine. Ambassador Taylor knows Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky personally. He met with him in January. He's impressed by how the former entertainer has risen to the moment to rally his own country and much of the world. He's got the technique, he's got the leadership, he's got the charm. He's the man for the hour. So can Putin be stopped? The Russians will lose one way or the other, but in the end, there will be a Ukraine. And how great could the cost and the consequences be? What we're looking at today is a pariah nation that has to be contained and deterred. The ambassador also has a surprising answer about the role China could play. Do you see an opportunity in that relationship to bend this conflict towards some kind of a resolution? This is a strategic blunder that the Chinese, in particular President Xi, can point out to President Putin. He may be the only one that could point that out. Ambassador William Taylor, welcome to Firing Line. Thank you, Margaret. It's great to be here. Ambassador, it's been more than two weeks since Vladimir Putin's invasion of Ukraine. While Russia continues to make advances and Russia's fighting forces are much stronger, Ukraine has demonstrated incredible resistance under the leadership of President Zelensky. I have heard you say that Ukrainians are fighting for freedom while many Russians don't know what they're fighting for. You are the former U.S. ambassador to Ukraine and a decorated Vietnam veteran. From your perspective, how long do you estimate Ukraine can continue its resistance? Margaret, they will continue their resistance. Each individual will continue his or her resistance to the end, I will tell you. Um, I will not say that in a week or two or a month or a year that they'll stop resisting. Margaret, because they will resist. They're resisting right now, as you've just indicated. Um, and they have, uh, against incredible odds, 10 to 1 odds on a lot of measures, 100 to 1 on other measures. It's it's David and Goliath squared, Margaret. It is just, it's unbelievable the disparity between the military capabilities of the Russians and the military capabilities of the Ukrainians. And that said, the Ukrainians have fought hard, harder than the Russians, clearly. And as you just indicated, they're fighting for something more than what the Russians are fighting for. The Russians, actually, the soldiers, they're not sure why they're fighting. They showed up and they thought they were on an exercise somewhere. The Ukrainians are fighting for their land. They are fighting for their homes. They're fighting for their independence from Russia that they've had for 30 years that they want to keep that they want to maintain. So in answer to your question, Margaret, they're going to resist to the end. President Zelensky has risen to the moment as a courageous wartime leader. 
you have met President Zelensky numerous times. Even as recently as this past January, you said in a 2020 interview that you, quote, found him to be very competent, very promising, very charming. Based on your personal interactions with him, what insight can you share about Zelensky's state of mind right now? So, Margaret, you quoted me from from uh, maybe two years ago. Um, and when I saw him at the end of January this year, he was a different person in some respects. He was focused. He was determined. I would even say, Margaret, grimly determined. Whereas when I saw him before, when I was serving in in, uh, in Kiev, in Ukraine. I, I met him when he had just been elected. He'd just been inaugurated. He had just won a, two big elections, his presidential election, and then a, and then a, uh, a parliamentary election where his party did very well. Um, he was, you know, bouncy and enthusiastic and, and certain that he would be able to accomplish the two things that he said he was going to do in his political campaign, his presidential campaign, which was to end the war on Ukrainian terms and to clean up corruption. Um, and he was determined to do that, and he was enthusiastic, and he was optimistic he could do that. When I saw him last month, in in end of January, he was still determined, and he was. It was before the before the actual invasion. He knew what was coming. He knew at least what the potential around his borders were. He knew that there were 150 thousand Russian soldiers on three of his borders. And he knew that he had to develop more military capability. We talked about that. Um, so he was focused uh, really on the capabilities of his military. He was also, Margaret, just confident, very confident in the Ukrainian people's willingness, determination to resist um, and, and to prevail. And I believe that he's right. I believe, in answer to your first question, they will continue until they prevail. It may take a long time. I hope it doesn't, but it may take a long time, um, and they will resist until they prevail. Do you think he's a different person? He's clearly the same person. He's clearly still charming, as I found him at first. Um, He's clearly a deep Ukrainian patriot. But I will say that he has stepped up. He has stepped up into this role, if you will, into this into this national leader, indeed, an international leader. Um, he has motivated his people, his citizens, his country, his military. He's motivated them to resist and to fight by staying there. One of the things he's done is he will not leave Kiev. He sees the same thing we all see, which is these 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 columns of Russian tanks and artillery and and trucks of of sustainment coming toward Kiev from several different directions, three different directions. And he's staying there. And he's taking photos, he's taking selfies, he's taking vid- videos of himself in his office outside of his administration. He took a picture, Margaret, of uh, a, a video with the background of a very famous, amazing building that has that has statues that every Ukrainian knows. Every Ukrainian knows that building, and he took it right there. He was making a statement. He's not leaving. He has 
stepped up into that role. It's an international role. It's a national role. One last thing I will just say about the military, um, and this gets kind of to your question about different person. As little as three weeks ago, as little as a, a, a month ago, there were still opposition parties, indeed opposition leaders, who were looking to find fault with President Zelensky. Since the invasion, the, the Ukrainian people and the Ukrainian opposition leaders have all consolidated around him. And he has let go all of the, all of the actions that he was taking against them. They have let go of the actions that they were taking against him. The Ukrainian people, the political class, the, the citizens, the military. Margaret, I've got a good friend um, who is a civilian. Um, he joined the Territorial Defense Forces that you've reported on, that uh, we know out there training, have been, that they trained for this. He then, when they, when they invaded, when the Russians actually came across the line, my friend joined the actual army, the, the regular military. He's out in the army right now. Before he had to give up his cell phone um, to, to go out and, and be on the front line, he told me that he who had been, he had been in the opposition party and opposition party. He told me he was very proud to be serving under President Zelensky. He was, and his colleagues, his soldiers on his right and left were, were very proud and they were loyal to him and are loyal to him. They will fight for him. Again, going back to your first question until the end. Are, are you surprised, Ambassador, at the, how powerfully Zelensky has met this moment? You know, he has... He has demonstrated through his two years. It's only been two years. We, we remember that two years ago, three years ago, he was a businessman. You know, he was in entertainment. Um, he had never held political office until, until 2019. Uh, so, so this is a, is an amazing transformation, stepping up again, stepping into this role. Um, and you could clearly see even beforehand, even bef when he was in the private sector, you could see that he was very well organized. Um, he was ve he was very successful. He's not a big businessman. He's not he's, he's not among the richest of the of Ukrainians. We know that there are big. We call them oligarchs that are very wealthy. That's that's not where President Zelensky came from. Um, he was successful. He was successful because he could motivate people. He has generated the loyalty. He has developed the loyalty of people around him. He brought some of them with him from the private sector into his, into his campaign and then into his uh, presidential office. And they're there. Some of these people have known him since high school, since elementary school, Margaret. They, they've been there. They're, he has developed this loyal group of men, mostly men, a couple of women, you'd be happy to know, um, who are there supporting him. And that prepared him, I'm sure, for some of this. Nothing like now. Nothing like now. I mean, to, to, to lead a nation at war against one of the two most powerful militaries in the world has brought out something in him that he probably was surprised. He is probably surprised at, at his own ability to step up into that, that leadership role um, to lead his country, to lead his military, to lead those soldiers, lead my friend and his colleagues uh, out there. 
he is the he has probably surprised himself. He's probably surprised a lot of Ukrainians, and they're very pleased to be surprised. They're proud of him. Another aspect of this war is how Zelensky has harnessed new technology to appeal to allies abroad. You, you mentioned him standing there taking images of himself, live images of himself in front of iconic Ukrainian buildings. But he has also zoomed into the United Kingdom's parliament. He zoomed with United States senators. He is meeting the moment. He's taking advantage of this technology to make his case to the world in a way that we've never seen anything like it before. What do you make of it? This is a new generation, Margaret. You're exactly right. Um, he's, He's, what, 44? This is a generation who is into these kinds of technologies. It, it, we, we just said that's where he's, where he's coming from. He's coming from the entertainment world. Uh, he's coming from a young world. He's coming from a technologically competent world. Uh, the people around him are equally competent. He's got great technologies, people, technologists around him, people who know how to do all of the digital aspects. Uh, so this is a new generation. He's bringing that with him. You're right about zooming into places that uh, and, and making the case, again, standing up as an as a international leader, making the case to support Ukraine, to oppose the Russian invasion. Uh, as you said, uh, the U.S. Congress, um, it's surprising that the Israelis didn't agree that was that was one thing that uh, that was was surprising that here they had the opportunity the Israeli parliament to have an opportunity to have President Zelensky come in and they said well no um, so that was that was a bit of a surprise but he's got the technique he's got the the leadership he's got the the personality um, he's got the charm uh, he's got the he's articulate so yeah he's the man for the hour. President Zelensky has repeatedly called for a no fly zone which would compel NATO countries to patrol the skies over Ukraine. You signed an open letter to the Biden administration with more than two dozen foreign policy experts calling for a limited no-fly zone over humanitarian quarters in Ukraine. The letter states, quote, what we seek is the deployment of American and NATO aircraft not in search of confrontation with Russia, but to avert and deter Russian bombardment that would result in a massive loss of Ukrainian lives. Now, Putin has said that he would consider the establishment of a no-fly zone by a third party a, quote, participation in an armed conflict. So how do you have a limited no-fly zone enforced without triggering a wider war? So one thing you do is you let the Russian military know what you're doing. I think you've reported, many have reported, that there are ways to be in touch, that the U.S. military is in touch, NATO military is in touch with the Russian military. We've got we've got a hotline set up um, and it's designed to do exactly this. That is, it's designed to avoid conflicts, confrontations, mistakes. So we use that uh, mechanism, that hotline um, between the NATO military and the Russian military to say that we recognize And you Russians recognize an agreement between Russians and Ukrainians that would allow these humanitarian corridors to have Ukrainians leave these cities. The Russians will have agreed. We NATO will have agreed. United States is part of NATO will have agreed. And we would let the Russian military know that we don't expect them 
to be flying missions, combat missions over humanitarian corridors that they've agreed to. And that we will, we're not out for a confrontation. They're not out for a confrontation, Margaret. Neither side is looking for conflict with each other. Neither side. We both know that that would be a terrible mistake. And that would be the way that we could do this. Now, let me just say further that, that my colleagues and I, as we thought about this and we recognized the, the, the gravity of the situation and the tragedy of the humanitarian situation that we see on the ground, you've been showing, we've all been watching this horrific scenes, visions, pictures, video coming out of Mariupol and other places um, over, over the last days. That's horrific. And we wanted to make a statement that recognizes how horrible that is and recognizes the importance of, of NATO support, of U.S. support, NATO support for the Ukrainian people for those, for those humanitarian corridors, uh, but also it's a statement that we are willing to support them in that way. Now, we've also said that maybe that doesn't work. And, and there's all indications from the administration that that's not an option that they're ready to, to pursue. We understand that. What we have said though, is that this is an important issue. It's imp we know it's important for President Zelensky. You, we've been talking about President Zelensky. One of the many things he said, and he said it many times, is close the sky. No fly zone. We want to recognize the problem that he is identified, and that is bombardment. Aerial bombardment. Now, it turns out it's not just, it's not even mainly from aircraft that this bombardment is taking place. Um, it's, it's missiles. It's intermediate range ballistic missiles. It's intermediate range cruise missiles um, that are targeting these cities. It's mostly that, some long range artillery. But these missiles, cruise missiles, ballistic missiles, that's where most of the damage is coming. And and U.S. warplanes, NATO warplanes, um, are not effective against missiles, crews, and ballistic. So the issue here is that we're trying to highlight is that's the problem. There may be other weapon systems, and there are other weapon systems, that would do even better job uh, than aircraft um, to try to stop that bombardment by those missiles. There, there, we know that there are ways to shoot down missiles from, from, from the ground, ground air missiles, air defense. This is what it's called, it's air defense. And there's air, there are air defense systems, some that the United States have, some that the Brits have, some that the Israelis have, um, that are able to protect cities, able to protect citizens, able to protect humanitarian corridors. That's what we were trying to do, Margaret. We we're trying to highlight that issue. And if if our solution is not accepted, then they'll look for others. But we've been we've been eager to push on ourselves um, and to support uh, the the basic request that President Zelensky has made. 
to your point, President Zelensky tweeted out a video in the aftermath of a Russian missile attack on a Ukrainian hospital and maternity ward in Mariupol, as you just mentioned. And he wrote in his tweet, quote, how much longer will the world be an accomplice to ignoring terror? Close the sky right now. Stop the killings. You have the power, but you seem to be losing humanity. The mayor in that city says more than 1,200 residents have been killed so far. Does the U.S. have blood on its hands if it doesn't come to Ukraine's aid in a more substantial way soon? So, Margaret, we need to do everything we can. Uh, we need to do it, make provide every weapon system, uh, provide every support uh, to Ukraine. They are on the front line. They are fighting the Russians. They're fighting the Russians alone. And they are on the front line for us, for, for NATO. Not very, right next to Ukraine, of course, are NATO nations, are the Poles, are the Bulgarians, are the Romanians, are the Slovaks. Ukraine is fighting the front line, fighting the Russians on the front line for those NATO nations, for NATO more broadly, for the United States included. They are fighting on our behalf and they are taking this horrible toll. They are bearing this horrible burden. Um, so yes, we ought to do everything we can to support them. Um, and, and we want them to prevail. We want them to win this battle, whether it's right now by pushing back on those columns that are, that are coming down toward Kyiv. Um, or a longer fight, uh, a longer battle. Yes, we have we have responsibility. We have a, I think, Margaret, we have a moral responsibility uh, to support them and to and to ensure that they win in the end. Ukraine also needs planes. The Pentagon rejected a proposal from Poland to move Polish-owned fighter jets to the U.S. Air Force Base in Germany and make them available to Ukrainian forces. You said, "quote." You've got to be careful if you don't fly into airspace, but this deal could help the Ukrainians a lot. Should the U.S. be making arrangements to supply the Ukrainians with more jets? And why isn't the Biden administration doing that? So this could have worked. Uh, this deal could have worked. Um, it would. It could have worked had it been handled a little better. Um, th this was an unusual uh, example there haven't been many examples, but this is, a, this is an unusual example of, of, a, of a miscommunication uh, among allies, among NATO allies. There was a miscommunication between the, the Polish military and the U.S. military and probably the Polish Ministry of Foreign Affairs and the U.S. Foreign Affairs between Poland and the United States on how to make this transaction work. We have, we have provided a lot of weapons, as, as everyone knows. The United States has provided a lot of weapons. NATO nations have provided a lot of weapons to the Ukrainians. This, these are these 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 uh, aircraft, these uh, Soviet-era MiG aircraft. Um, those are just sophisticated weapons, and we could have we could have worked it out um, in order to get those those airplanes into Kiev, in, into Ukraine, um, and and have the Ukrainian pilots man them, uh, fly them. Um, but now it's such a such a public mess uh, that it's going to be very difficult to do. What was the nature of the miscommunication, Ambassador? So uh, uh, Secretary Blinken 
uh, had indicated um, that we were working with the Poles and with other NATO allies um, to provide these Soviet-era weapons, uh, these, these Soviet-era MiG fighters. Um, and uh, there was the expectation at that time um, that somehow these, these uh, planes would be moved into Ukraine. Um, and then uh, uh, all of a sudden, and uh, Undersecretary Toria Newland was clearly surprised at, the, at a hearing uh, uh, two days, uh, several days ago, um, uh, that the Poles had suddenly decided that they were going to send them to Ramstein Air, uh, Air Base, uh, a, a NATO base, a U.S. base in Germany. That was a surprise. That was a miscommunication. That's the miscommunication, Margaret, that I'm talking about, that normally um, allies coordinate with each other, in particular about moving aircraft to a, to a base, to a, to a U.S. base or a NATO base. Uh, that needs to happen. There are a lot of lines of communication uh, between Washington and Warsaw. Um, and they are foreign policy lines and there are defense lines and there are you know, leadership lines. Um, and, and those are the normal ways that these, these communications, this coordination is made. Um, and somehow those lines between Warsaw and Washington um, didn't get used. That seems like a pretty significant loss. I agree. You have said that the U.S. should have done more years ago in terms of arming Ukraine, including sending anti-aircraft missiles like Stingers. You know, had we done more to supply arms and weapons to the Ukrainians over the last several years. Do you think we would have a conflict now or would the nature of the conflict be different? Margaret, I think we'd probably still have the conflict now. And, and the reason I say that uh, is that President Putin has made it pretty clear, uh, even to non-Putin specialists like myself, uh, uh, he's made it pretty clear over the years and certainly over the past six or eight months explicitly that he has this obsession to control, dominate, reabsorb Ukraine. This was going to happen, in my view, Margaret, whether or not we provided those weapons earlier. So how different would the conflict look if they had had weapons? Right. That's what I was going to say. That is, if we had provided a larger amount of weapons earlier, it would have looked different uh, because the Ukrainians would, would not now be getting close to running out. I mean, they're worried about how many stingers they have left and how many javelins they have left. But Putin would have still invaded sooner or later, in my view. Um, we tried to deter him. We thought that he might be deterred. We thought that President Biden made it very clear to President Putin in a, in a phone call and in a meeting, but in particular in a phone call at the end of December about what kind of sanctions would go on him and what kind of weapons we were then really ramping up into Ukraine and what kind of military forces we were moving from the United States to NATO allies on the eastern flank. We made it very clear what the costs would be. And, and we thought that he might be deterred because we thought 
that that he was a you know a rational actor and he pro- maybe still a rational actor, but his evaluation of the costs and benefits are clearly different from ours. Um, and he went in anyway. And I think, Margaret, that even if we had provided more weapons um, earlier uh, to the Ukrainians, I think President Putin sooner or later would have invaded. And then your question about would it have looked differently? Yes, the Ukrainians would have fought strong more. You know, they would have more resources um, and they would they would go longer. I still think they will go very long. I think in the end they will prevail. I've already said that. Um, uh, but it would have been better for them to go in with more weapons at the beginning um, than they were able to be going now. President Biden said in December that he would not send U.S. troops to fight in Ukraine. And this position is a position that he has stood by. But some have made the case that taking that stand so early on cost the United States the advantage of strategic ambiguity. Is it smart to take options off the table completely in these kind of international affairs? I think this is a hard, hard question. Um, I think President Biden is right to avoid a conflict between the United States and Russia or between NATO and Russia. I also believe that the Russians want to avoid a conflict between Russia and NATO and the United States. So I think President Biden, you know, th- that's that has to be right. That has to be right. Now, the question you ask is, do you allow President Putin to wonder whether or not American forces would go into Ukraine and fight Russians in Ukraine? Um, does that give, does that, does it deter? Does, does that ambiguity that you just described, does that help deter an, an invasion? Does that help change this calculus um, that President Putin was going through as he decided when and where, whether or not uh, now to invade? Um, and and this, is a, this is a hard question. It's a political question. It's a military question. It's a strategic question. Um, and, and President Biden made the decision he did. Is it fair to say that taking U.S. troops off the table must have factored into Putin's decision to invade? You know, I'm not sure. I'm not sure it did. Um, Again, in my view, uh, he was going to invade in any case. Um, In my view, uh, he, Putin, um, was not to be deterred by a state, an ambiguous statement or a lack of statement from from the United States about whether or not there would be U.S. forces in. President Putin knows what NATO is. He knows all too well what NATO is, and he knows exactly who's in it and what the what the requirements are and the obligations are um, in NATO. And he knows uh, that if he attacks a NATO nation that all NATO nations will respond. Um, he knows that. And, and he knows, of course, that Ukraine is not in NATO. And that's why he was emboldened, I think, a horrible mistake. I think a strategic blunder that he has made by invading Ukraine, even though he knows Ukraine's not a member of NATO. It's a, it's a blunder. He's going to lose with this. As I said, Ukraine's going to prevail. But he was going to do that one way or the other, and well, one way or the other, he was going to dominate Ukraine. He's, that's what his goal is. Until he dies, he will. We will be trying to do that, and we'll try to foil that. The Ukrainians obviously are going to foil that. The United States and NATO are going to try to foil 
President Putin's goal of, of, of absorbing, dominating, controlling Ukraine. We're going we're to control that. And the question is whether or not a statement or lack of a statement about U.S. forces going into Ukraine would have stopped him. Probably not. About a month ago, before the invasion, I, I read a quote from you where you said that you believed that Putin would blink. Did you believe that deterrence was working? How has your thinking changed? Margaret, I was wrong. I did think that they would blink. Now, I, I couched it. I said 55-45 against an invasion. That was my, my analysis of the, of the odds. And so I said 55-45. I also said that 45% chance of a major war in Europe is terrifying. Um, but you're absolutely right. Um, I did think that the cost to Putin, the cost to Russia um, of an invasion would be enough to let to, to push him toward another solution, another way, another approach uh, to negotiate a way to address some of his real problems. And I made the case that uh, that there were negotiations that could happen that were available to him to address some of the some of the problems he said he had. He said he was he had problems with NATO or or even American missiles in Ukraine that might threaten Moscow in seven minutes. That's, we can address that. We could have addressed that. Uh, he said he was concerned about, about uh, U.S. bombers flying too close to the Russian borders. We can address that. There were reciprocal measures that both sides could have taken, could have negotiated, could have, he could have, he sort of gone to the table. So yes, I thought that the costs in terms of the number of Russian soldiers that were going to die and are dying, that the costs he would pay to his economy, he is paying. It is you've just reported that the that his economy is just dropping off the table. Russian people are angry. Uh, they notice that uh, that this is really having an effect on them. We predicted that. We pointed that out. I thought that those costs would have been enough to push him toward negotiations to try to go another way. And I was wrong. He invaded anyway. He, inv he disregarded those costs. Again, his evaluation of those costs and benefits is different from mine. Um, I thought he would he would make the decision not to invade, look for another way to do this, and he invaded anyway. So why do you think he did? I think he has a an obsession, a mission uh, to dominate Ukraine. Um, there are those who think that actually he, it's, it goes, it will go beyond that. And it may well, that is, if he, if he's allowed to take over Ukraine, to dominate Ukraine, to reabsorb Ukraine into the Russian empire, <clears throat> to reassemble part of the Soviet Union, at least the part that includes Ukraine, which was the key, the most important part of the Soviet Union that, that, uh, that he lost, that the Russians lost in when the Soviet Union broke up. That was that. That was his goal. That is his goal. Um, so I believe that that was. And he, and he went about that goal. He went about trying to achieve that goal, Margaret, in several different ways. Uh, one was um, he had those two. We we know these two little puppet states that in the eastern part of Ukraine, Donetsk and Luhansk. So we know them as Donbas. Um, and he thought that maybe that was the way that he could control Ukraine. If he could control those two little puppet states, and if they were inside of Ukraine, part of Ukraine, and they would be able to affect Ukrainian foreign policy 
and maybe deter or stop or impede uh, the Ukrainians' interest in, determination to join NATO or the European Union. Maybe he thought those little Donetsk and Luhansk uh, puppet states could help him achieve this goal of dominating Ukraine. Well, that didn't work. That didn't work. He threw that all out when he recognized uh, those two little puppet states um, as as independent, as not part of Ukraine. So he threw that out. But he didn't give up on trying to control Ukraine. He went to another a horrible decision, which, he, which if he can't control Ukraine through these two little puppet states, then he's going to invade and go take over Kiev. He's going to try to take over Kiev. And we've seen the Ukrainian military resisting that, continuing to resist that, and they will. What you've referenced is that we did have a failed deterrence strategy when it came to deterring and dissuading Vladimir Putin from invading Ukraine. What are the consequences, Ambassador, of this failed deterrence strategy beyond this conflict? And I'm looking at China and Taiwan uh, and frankly, America's standing in the world as the defender of democracy. Margaret, this is why it's so important that Ukraine win this fight, win this battle, win this war. This is why it's so important, first of all, for Ukraine and Ukrainians. They're an independent, sovereign nation, and they should continue to be an independent, sovereign nation, and we should support them with everything we have. Second, um, they are fighting on our behalf, as I've said, to protect Europe. Um, third, they are the front line, exactly what you have just said, of democracy and autocracy. Undoubtedly, President Xi in Beijing is watching very closely uh, what happens between Russia and Ukraine. President Xi probably thought, President Putin probably thought, that the United States after having withdrawn from forever wars and having withdrawn from Afghanistan in a way that was not pretty, maybe they both thought, President Xi and President Putin both thought that the United States was going to pull back from its, from its global leadership role, pull back from the world, withdraw into itself, focus on America first. Maybe that's what they thought. If so, President Putin is undoubtedly surprised, undoubtedly surprised that the United States has stepped up into the leadership role of this alliance, undoubtedly surprised that the alliance has accepted that role again by the United States, undoubtedly surprised that not just the NATO alliance, but Europeans, as well as Asian countries, as well as Japan, South Korea, Australia. This is an international alliance against President Putin. And I imagine that President Xi is noticing that. President Xi is in an interesting position. He has not supported Russia's invasion of Ukraine. We remember that President Putin visited uh, Beijing for the opening of the Olympics. And then President Xi and President Putin had this long conversation and issued this long statement. Interesting thing, Margaret, about that statement was there was no mention of Ukraine. There was no, Ukraine doesn't appear. Pres, President Xi and China not interested, was not interested in seeing Russia invade its neighbor, violate sovereignty. The Chinese have a lot of investments in Ukraine, a lot of investments in Ukraine. 
And those investments now, after this invasion, many destroyed, investors are, are fleeing. His investment, President Xi and China's investment in Ukraine, uh, now don't look so good because of this invasion. So China is not supportive of this invasion. And they are looking, as we know, they abstained in the in Security Council when, when there was a proposal, there was a, a resolution in the UN Security Council to condemn the Russian invasion. There was only one vote there for it. <clears throat> it was Russia. China did, not, China did not support Russia. China abstained. Same thing in the General Assembly, in the UN General Assembly. Um, Russia got five votes. There were 141 votes against Russia and five votes that didn't include China. China abstained again. So China is watching this. They're uncomfortable because of the economics. They're uncomfortable because of the, of the mistake that they probably see Putin making. They, they, they don't want to be tainted by this. They're even, their, their companies are even, are now so far abiding by these embargoes. Um, and they're not supplying the Russians with the components. Um, that we are denying the, the Russians uh, as well. So uh, this is all to say it's, it's a complicated, it's a complicated situation for the Chinese to be in. But I'm sure they are watching, and I'm sure they are seeing the United States is not stepping back, and I'm sure they are seeing the tough defense that the Ukrainians are putting on, and that's surprising and probably disappointing to them. Some speculate that she may be the one global leader that still has the ability to influence Vladimir Putin. Do you see an opportunity in that relationship to bend this conflict towards some kind of a resolution? Margaret, I do. I think that President Xi, because of this kind of big brother, little brother relationship, dominant power, subordinate power, China, Russia, um, the Chinese are clearly in the driver's seat in that relationship. And President Putin knows it. And President Xi could use that. I don't know if he wants to use that. I don't know if he will use that. He could use that, that relationship, that influence, to make it clear to President Putin that he's made a major mistake. He's made a blunder. However that conversation goes, doesn't matter. It's What matters is what you said. And that is, what matters is that President Putin realized he's made a bad mistake. He's made a strategic blunder that he will pay for, for generations, not just in terms of the economy, but in terms of having a hostile nation on his border. Ukraine will never forget this. They will never forgive the Russians, in particular, Mr. Putin, for this. So, so this is a strategic blunder that the Chinese, in particular, President Xi, can point out to President Putin. And it's probably, he may be the only one that could point that out. Um, so yes, I think that there is the possibility. And I think that President Putin could probably find a way with that kind of pressure from the Chinese, President Putin could probably find a way to do what you said, that is kind of stand down, declare that he achieved what he wanted to achieve, go to the negotiating table. There, there's, there's a negotiation to be had. President Zelensky has said he's willing to sit down and negotiate. Um, there, there's, a, there's an agreement to be had. And that, I'm sure, President Putin could convince the Russian people um, that it's okay. 
that yeah, actually he won. Uh, he, he could convince them of that. I am I'm sure. President Xi could have a major positive effect on this conflict. You know, in 1990, United States Secretary of State James Baker told Soviet leader Mikhail Gorbachev that in exchange for German reunification, NATO's jurisdiction would not move one inch to the east. That's a quote. There is a postmortem happening now about whether NATO expansion in the 1990s, including many of the Warsaw Pact countries, played some role in aggravating the United States relationship with Russia and ultimately igniting Putin's current aggressions. Now, you worked at NATO in Brussels, and in 2008, you encouraged the Bush administration to give Ukraine the chance to join NATO. So how do you reflect on that argument now? I believe then. Um, I believed in the in the 90s that I believed in 2008 uh, when uh, when the Ukrainians were interested, at least the leadership of uh, Ukraine was interested at that time, that NATO is a defensive alliance that provides security for its members. And I think that's right. Uh, and um, I also think that the Warsaw Pact nations that you just mentioned um, and even some of the of the nations uh, like the Baltic states, uh, Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia, um, when they looked, suddenly they're free. You know, 1991, Soviet Union disappears, 1992, in the 90s, um, suddenly those Warsaw Pact nations and some components of the former Soviet, some new independent states that had been part of the Soviet Union, they're suddenly free and they're worried about their security. They ask themselves, how can we secure ourselves? And they say, Russia is a, is a threat. We know Russia has always been, historically, Russia has been a threat and it's still a threat. And there's an alliance, there's a defensive alliance that we are now free to at least apply to. They, they knew they could apply. That's in the NATO charter that says uh, any European nation meets the standards, can apply. Um, and they said, we're European, we will meet the standards, we're going to work to meet those standards, and we're going to apply. And NATO said yes. The idea was a, was a Europe that was whole, including Warsaw Pact nations. It might have even included Russia at one point, Margaret. That was, that was a possibility. Maybe dim, maybe distant, maybe remote, um, but that was a possibility. A Europe whole and free, that was a vision. That, and I, in my view, that was that was a good vision, and and to say yes to those applicant nations, those nations who were trying to think about how they could secure themselves, how they could be, how they could do what they have to do to their own citizens. That is, secure them, be ensure that they're not invaded, or not dominated, or not intimidated by being part of a defensive alliance. There was a successful defensive alliance. Um, that was, I think, that was the right decision then. Um, I think it's the right decision now. Um, I don't think that uh, that Russia's invasion, that Putin's invasion, let's be clear, it's Putin's invasion. I, it's, 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 it's not clear to me at all that Putin's invasion would have, what, what was result of NATO expansion. And I've said before that Putin wants Ukraine. He doesn't want Ukraine to go to the West. He doesn't want Ukraine to go into Europe. He does, therefore, he doesn't want Ukraine in NATO or the EU. Um, he wants Ukraine. He wants to dominate Ukraine. And then maybe more. You know, maybe after he consolidates Ukraine, then yes, there are, there are, 
there are threats to Moldova, uh, even to, to NATO countries. Um, but he wants Ukraine. And I don't think that the that the story um, that it's NATO's fault, that it's the United States fault that Putin invaded Ukraine. No, no. Putin invaded Ukraine beca because he was willing to violate all standards, all norms, um, it, commit war crimes. He's willing to do all of that in order to dominate Ukraine. You just said you believed that it was the right decision then and it's the right decision now. So to be clear, you believe that that Ukraine should be on the path to NATO membership now. I do. I do. Um, it's not going to happen soon. The amazing thing, Margaret, is everybody knows, the Ukrainians know that it's a long process. The Ukrainians know that it's not anytime soon um, that, that they're going to be in NATO. Um, it's a long process. There's a lot to be done. There's a lot of work to be done. Um, and yet that was the reason that Putin gave for invading, for, for killing tens of thousands of Russians as well as Ukrainians. He's killing tens of thousands of civilians in order to try to prevent something that everybody knows is not going to happen soon. But yes, I would say um, Ukraine, when it wins, when it prevails um, in the end, and I hope it's sooner rather than later, but even if it's later, it will prevail. And it will have demonstrated, Margaret, that it is a strong nation, a sovereign nation that can defend itself and it in this and 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 what I see happening that is in the end Ukraine defeating the Russians' invasion of their country. When that happens, then then that will be a demonstration that Ukraine is is probably a good member of NATO, a defensive alliance that is there to defend its its uh, its members. Yeah, I, I think uh, Ukraine may well may, may well be a strong applicant. And now, as we know. As we know, it takes it takes unanimous agreement in NATO. So all 30 members uh, have to agree. That won't happen anytime soon. We know that. But your question is, um, do I think that Ukraine could apply? Yes. You have said that it's, quote, impossible to believe that Russia can occupy and control Ukraine, considering the size of the country, the fiscal cost, and the will of the 40 million Ukrainian people who are they're resisting and fighting for their sovereignty. So how, how should this end for Putin? And what role should the United States play to encourage that outcome? So the role the United States should play to encourage the outcome, which I will, uh, I will try to describe, um, is continuation of the strong support militarily, financially, politically, uh, economically um, that that is making, that has made and, and that has resulted in a strong sovereign nation uh, of Ukraine. And that should continue. That should continue in whatever form, you know, however this ends. And there are a lot of different ways this, this could end. It might be that the Ukrainians have to have to resist further. It might be that uh, that the Russians are able to get into Kiev. In which case, President Zelensky will lead his nation from somewhere else. President Zelensky will, will lead a sovereign Ukraine, um, and the world will recognize that sovereign Ukraine under President Zelensky, his successor, his successor's successor. Um, uh, the world will recognize that as the legitimate government. And that legitimate government should continue to, to benefit from the support of the Europeans, 
and the Americans and the IMF and should rebuild itself. Uh, it resists, it will resist and resist. And finally, the Russians will lose one way or the other. Maybe the Ukrainians will push the Russians back now over the next week or two, but, but maybe it takes longer. But in the end, there will be a Ukraine. It may not look exactly the same as it does now. There will be a Ukraine that we will support. And then, and that, that Ukraine will, will rebuild, um, and will not let its sovereignty fail, will not let its territorial integrity go unfixed. They will try to re return whatever they might have lost in this, uh, in, in this outcome. So, and we should support them. So Ukraine is a sovereign state. It will be, we should support them. And in the end, it will prevail. In 1988, in the original firing line that was hosted by William F. Buckley Jr., the panelists debated whether the right was better able to deal with the Soviets than the left. One of the participants was the former UN ambassador, Jean Kirkpatrick. The fact is that U.S. relations with the Soviet Union were better under Dwight Eisenhower than under Harry Truman. Better under Richard Nixon than under Kennedy Johnson. And they are better under Ronald Reagan than they were under Jimmy Carter. It's an interesting look. Better, better, better in both senses. Better in the sense that there is less Soviet expansion aggression, fewer people sucked in to the Soviet empire. I believe that Republican presidents deal better with the Soviets because they deal from realism and they deal from strength. The Soviets understand it and um, they know where they are. So since the end of the Cold War, Ambassador, and in particular in the most recent incarnation of the Republican Party led by President Donald Trump, the GOP has taken on a remarkably different posture towards Russia than it did in the 1980s. And I wonder how you reflect, looking back on your long career as a diplomat, on the change, the political change within the Republican Party with respect to authoritarian expansion since the Cold War. So, Margaret, uh, this political question uh, is, 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 uh, is not one that I normally like to uh, engage in. Um, and I will say that, first of all, I'm not sure where the Republican Party is right now. So I'm not sure how to characterize uh, um, the attitude of, of, of the Republican Party, where, whatever it is, toward Russia. What I will say is that the relations that Ambassador Kirkpatrick describe good and bad between political parties over over time that's changed that changed on the 24th of february 2022 that changed when the russians invaded probably changed when the russians a couple of days prior when they recognized those two puppet statelets uh, in ukraine as independent but certainly it changed uh, for a long time for the into the future, that invasion of Ukraine by Russia has changed the, the, the attitudes, changed the situation, changed the strategic calculation um, that 
that the United States will make, Republican or Democrat. It will, it doesn't matter. President Putin has isolated himself, has transformed himself into a pariah that neither the Republicans nor the Democrats nor any, virtually any democracy, maybe not even the Chinese that we talked about earlier, can support. So President Putin, again, has made this strategic blunder. He's unified. He's probably unified the Republican Party. He's probably unified the, the U.S. political spectrum in opposition to him. He's clearly unified the Europeans and NATO. He's clearly, he's done more for Ukrainian unity, as we've talked about earlier under President Zelensky, than any Ukrainian pre president or leader in history. So uh, irrespective of, of Republicans and Democrats over time, vis-a-vis -vis the Russians or the Soviets um, in, in previous time, what we're looking at today is a pariah nation that has to be contained and deterred um, as we had done earlier times successfully, but this is a new, a new time, uh, and it will unify the United States against Russia. Ambassador, you have served this country remarkably for many years as a diplomat and in our armed forces. You have lived in Ukraine. You have many close friends in Ukraine. You are watching it now as we are from this side of the world. And I wonder if you have a message to your Ukrainian friends from you as an American? I do have good friends in Ukraine, um, and I am in touch with them regularly. I may have mentioned one of my good friends uh, who was in the civilian world um, is now in the military, and I've not heard from him in about a week because he had to give up his cell phone. Um, I've been closely in touch with him over the, over the time since 2006. Um, um, I have other good friends that I stay in touch with They're in and out of the government. Um, uh, and it is wrenching. It is wrenching for me, um, knowing these people as I do, respecting these people as I do, loving these people as, as I do, uh, to have them have to fight the battle of their lives against, against a dictator who wants to dominate them. It, it is it is wrenching. So my message is we support you. The United States supports you. You are fighting our fight. You are on the front line of a battle that you didn't choose, of a war that you didn't start. And, and we are behind you. You are fighting on our behalf and we respect that. We're going to support that. We want you to succeed. We're going to do everything in our power to help you succeed. And we agree, you will prevail. So I was on the phone yesterday with a young woman whose husband is in the military. Um, she is not leaving Ukraine. Um, and she said, I don't know how this war is going to end, but I know we will win. And my message to my Ukrainian friends is that we support her, that we support you, we support Ukraine. You're fighting our fight. We are confident you will succeed. Ambassador William Taylor, thank you for joining me on Firing Line. Margaret, thank you very much for having me.